0: Welcome to VR in
1: Education. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another hopefully exciting episode of VR in Education. In today's episode, we are talking with Thomas Logan, He's the CEO of Equal Entry. Equal Entry promotes inclusion, accessibility to people all over the world. I actually crossed paths initially with Thomas when we were both presenting at the Educators in VR conference, and then we hooked up later. So Thomas is here today to talk to us about his role in educating people about inclusion, and more importantly, designing experiences, especially in VR for groups of people uh, who may have disabilities. So welcome to the show, Thomas.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Craig, for having me today. Looking forward to discussing this with you.
1: Everyone has their aha moment or origin story as it pertains to VR, which is such a, a special communication medium. How did you get interested in VR?
0: Yes, with VR, it definitely comes from my childhood. Um, I was a kid that liked going out to the arcades, like the Aladdin's Castles and other arcades in the 1980s. So I remember um, very vividly playing a game, uh, Dactyl Nightmare, at a big arcade. And this was a game where you had like a walking track. You could use your feet, you're wearing a headset, you had physical controllers. And I remember at that time, this kid just feeling so excited that I was really immersed inside of this world. And then I also remember this book uh, by Piers Anthony called Kilobyte. And that was a book that I read that got me just really fascinated too about the ideas of virtual worlds. And it's interesting um, that the protagonist or one of the protagonists of that book uh, was a wheelchair user. And so it does have a connection to accessibility, but that kind of came first as like my interest and excitement about virtual reality.
1: I had not... Heard of that, so I'm going to write that down. Thank you for uh, a new a new book for me. You know, not everyone not everyone Thomas instinctively contemplates accessibility and inclusion. As a design teacher myself, I, I teach a little bit of the topic, but not to the extent you would learn it in university. Can you offer listeners uh, a simple definition and maybe even provide examples of? Groups of people who might fit into this definition of uh, accessibility?
0: Sure. So, accessibility, you know, very broadly is viewed as the ability to access information or some system. And so, you know, my first introduction to accessibility or my, my way of understanding what accessibility means was when I was a undergraduate in computer science at the University of North Carolina. Um, I got introduced to A graduate student who was blind in the classics department. And part of his research for his master's thesis was looking at ancient world maps. And all of these ancient world maps were, you know, in old textbooks or in, you know, very elegant uh, ancient world map books. And so for someone who is blind, the ability to access or benefit from the information that's contained in a map visualization, it's not available to someone that cannot see them and so the idea of accessibility is um, providing a means or a way to enable access for people with disabilities or special needs to access you know information and participate in research and understanding the world around us so that was my initial um, introduction to the concept it's quite a broad concept accessibility and it relates now I think a lot of people talk about the idea of universal design where we basically try to recognize anything that's being designed both in the physical world or in the software or technology world, but we want to identify and recognize where people might become excluded or not be able to fully participate in what's being built. And so as a broad category, um, accessibility applies to people with, uh, auditory disabilities, so this could be a person who's deaf or hard of hearing, Uh, cognitive disabilities, so this could be people with uh, dyslexia, uh, attention deficit disorder, Um, neurological disabilities, physical disabilities, such as quadriplegia, paraplegia, speech disabilities, so for people that cannot communicate with their voice, and then visual disabilities for people who are blind or low vision. Um, Also accessibility can apply in situational uh, limitations. So, this could be trying to use a cell phone in the bright sunlight. You know, this is an idea of accessibility being a feature or a way to help people that might not have a uh, defined disability, but in a certain situation, a limit um, exists. And then there are temporary disabilities, um, such as having a broken leg or a, a broken hand, where um, for a certain period of time, uh, a person may be experiencing the inability to access information with those faculties.
1: What a great, great way to explain it and quite comprehensive. Thanks, uh, Thomas. I've done a lot of VR applications and many of them, without even thinking about it, provide opportunity for some people who have accessibility issues. One example that comes to mind at One of the schools I was teaching at was uh, a particular boy was in a wheelchair and he couldn't participate in the school's tennis program. So we put a VR headset on the boy and there was a VR tennis application where he could just sit in his chair and the built-in AI within the tennis program allowed him to swing at the ball And any time the ball came back over the net in VR to him, the AI would position him through proper locations so that all he had to really do was worry about sort of where he swung his arm. And it was such a fantastic experience for him because he got to try out tennis where, you know, normally that may not be the case. Are there other examples that you can provide where without even thinking about it, VR automatically and instinctively might provide uh, benefit to people with accessibility issues?
0: Yes. And that's an awesome example. Uh, the tennis example, I, I'll remember that one. That's great to hear that, um, that AI was able to help, you know, create a fun and exciting experience. Um, I think definitely for school children with physical disabilities, and I would think specifically children that use wheelchairs or, um, different mobility aids, I think that's definitely for with the way the current technology is working. Uh, one of the most direct uh, abilities to enhance opportunities. I think about field trips where potentially Mm. where the field trip is going might not actually have uh, physical um, accessibility. I know, for example, a lot of places in Europe uh, where there's a lot older buildings, older structures, they haven't been made um, accessible for people to access in a wheelchair. And so that's something that I think when we look at 360 degree video, um, even, you know, navigating in apps like Wander or Google Earth in a virtual reality headset. I'm finding it, you know, for myself and, you know, for I think lots of people that do these experiences, it's getting closer and closer to feeling just like you were actually there in the the real world. So I think that one's um, pretty amazing right now. And it's, it's already working and obviously improving uh, more and more. I think another one is for social interaction. So there's a lot of uh, social virtual reality um, platforms and we'll be talking about, Um, I've done a lot of work on those platforms and I know that for people that have um, different types of um, social anxieties or maybe cognitive disabilities or physical disabilities where in the real world, um, they might experience bullying or experience you know, negative social interactions in the classroom. That's something kind of exciting in virtual reality. That you know, no one knows what you look like. You can you can represent yourself um, as an avatar. You can represent yourself as a different gender. You, you can basically explore and represent yourself um, in new ways. And so, I think that's also something um, pretty powerful. There's a there's a great video on YouTube called "Kid in v- VR Chat" talks about being bullied. Mm. Um, he was a student. With ADHD, and he he really talks about how social VR um, let him make friends and feel like he had people he could go and talk to about problems he was experiencing um, in school, like in the day to day life. So I thought that was great.
1: Yeah, we often get worried as pastoral caregivers, whether that's parents or other people, sort of thinking about the well being of children. We get worried with the idea of anonymity, but you know, in this case, sometimes an, an anonymity can can help, right?
0: Right. Right.
1: Uh, another example that, you know, I wanted to get your uh, perspective on was uh, I had interviewed uh, a few episodes back, a lady called Shannon Pootman and she was using VR to help a boy with autism. So parents had asked her and her team to develop Uh, a recreation of a restaurant that the family wanted to go to, but the young boy uh, had extreme autism. So taking him to the restaurant was just too new and too foreign. So what her team did is they recreated a volumetric capture of the restaurant where the tables were and populated it with, uh, you know, AI people. And then Shannon worked with this boy so that he became comfortable and familiar with the environment and surroundings to the point after so much exposure that the family then was able to take the boy to this restaurant and it wasn't so new and overwhelming to him. And what a great use case scenario there.
0: Yes, I, I think that's uh extremely exciting use of virtual reality. And and that's something that I've, I've heard other examples. Um, I've, I've actually heard of some examples with people that experience psychosis or people that, um, experience other types of social anxieties, being able to actually work in that virtual environment with, with your therapist, it's so much different than, you know, going to meet a therapist just in their office um, and and talking about these things, there there definitely seems to be a connection and benefit from you know being immersed in that experience and being able to practice um, the different scenarios. So yeah, I think that's also something that there's a lot of research going on right now, and it does seem to be a lot of positive um, results coming out of that. I, I've also seen that with the fear of heights mm. um, being kind of explored and and worked through with a therapist like in these experiences.
1: I've, uh, I tried the application called Ricky's or Richie's plank experience. And I do have a a minor fear of heights. And for the life of me, I cannot walk across the plank for Richie's plank experience at all. So
0: (laughs) I love you bring that example up. that, that actually in my, 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 years after you know graduating with my undergraduate degree that that planck experience you know even in the nascent you know less developed world of virtual reality I, I, that really showed me how powerful it was mm. uh, I remember the Planck experience vividly from like you know 15 years ago and having the same thing if I if this can make my brain have that kind of reaction this is very powerful technology I,
1: I concur let's go to the other end of the spectrum then we you know we've been talking about how vr you know without even thinking about it has enhanced and benefited these particular groups of people but at the same time vr has a long way to go you know and there may be lots of accessibility issues where these people are shut out and can't use vr Can you talk a bit about that and what we need to do to ensure that either uh, game developers or application developers or even hardware developers are considering people who have uh, accessibility issues uh, and what we need to do to ensure that the hardware and the software don't shut these people out?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So a lot of my career has been working with people who are blind and low vision uh, because there's such an immediate uh, need with software interfaces that have visual information expressed to have an alternative mechanism. So I can share a story just from last Friday, working with this XR research study group on evaluating a lot of different VR titles um, with people who are blind and low vision. And one of the things you find kind of immediately, we were testing with a Windows Mixed Reality headset, um, and we were using Zoom and working with uh, John Samuel from LCI Technologies to watch how he was interacting or what the first user experience is like for someone that's blind um, coming into Windows Mixed Reality. And we basically found, you know, there's, there's really no notification, there's no real prompting right now that could let him get oriented or even open up an application. Um, and we wanted to try using a social VR application with him. So we were testing one too, where basically there's a login process where you have to you know, create a user. Most of these accounts, you need to create a new user so that you can use them. And for someone who's blind um, and using uh, technology that would need to be speaking information back to them, there was just no way to enter a username or password. So I think, you know, that's really getting shut out at the front door of the experience. You can't even get in to Mm -hmm. um, log in. So that really can be evaluated and fixed by the companies that are making these experiences by working with people with disabilities. You know, in this case, if they did a user test with just one person that was blind or low vision, they would be like, wow, you can't even get past the You know the login experience like we need to make sure we build in a a separate way or not a separate way but just build an alternative to access that and most likely through announcing it with speech and maybe using voice input there would be a fairly straightforward way um, to address that issue Um, another big uh, barrier that i experience, especially in the education i know we're talking to a lot of educators here on this podcast um There's so many different simulations and educational content that are being put into VR that have no closed captioning or no text description of the narration that's being spoken and and heard auditorily. So that's just something that again can very immediately be seen in a lot of experiences as you're looking for the closed caption button in the settings, or even maybe just by default having that on, and it's just nowhere to be found. So I think that you know, obviously for people that can't, are deaf or hard of hearing, they're pretty much shut out of those experiences. And then the last really common one I would say is that because VR systems, sort of the default right now of the most immersive types, would it, would have an expectation that someone can walk around um, with their legs, have full reach and mobility with two hands, and fully control two hand controllers as well as rotate your neck um, to move and look around a space. And so if experiences are designed with just that as the baseline assumption, that's you know going back to that topic of sort of exclusionary design that we sh- can't have an assumption that all of those ranges of motion um, can be relied on. And so I'd say most experiences right now do make that an assumption and then there's people that get left out.
1: Do you notice... A difference between children and adults when it comes to their experience with VR? Because children, we often call them digital natives. Mm -hmm. Many of them are so much more comfortable and have courage and agency when it comes to new technologies, whereas sometimes adults tend to be more fearful. Do you see that with your work, especially between adults and children?
0: Yes, I'd say it's a a broad generalization. There's there's just the difficulty of the VR, let's say just the VR hand controllers to start with. Um, there's potentially like six to eight buttons, multiple analog sticks, thumb sticks. There's all these different buttons that then get used um, different ways and different experiences. There's not a lot of common patterns. And so I do find that more digital natives have an assumption of, exploring with a controller, potentially remembering, oh, when I press this button, this happens. Uh, And I think that as people get older or older adults that aren't using technology very frequently, or maybe are only used to typing on a keyboard and a mouse, it's much more difficult to explain, okay, put your thumb here, your middle finger here, index finger here. So I think that that's definitely something I've observed kind of broadly. And also, as you mentioned, just I think children have less of a frequency to give up or just get frustrated and and not want to um, try out the exciting technology. And I think for um, adults, it's easier just to say, "Oh, this doesn't work for me. Like I'd rather not try anymore
1: if i'm If I'm blind or you know extremely low ability with vision, because VR is such a, a visual medium, You know, is there, you know, arguably is there limited benefit for that particular group or is there experiences within uh, the VR headset uh, that are mostly auditory that will still provide them the benefit that VR wants to entail?
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely, you know, it's going to depend experience by experience um, what the objectives are of um, benefiting from the experience, but I think a lot of people looked at virtual reality like true immersion. Uh, there does need to be much more of a focus on the sound environment and the you know 3 d spatialized sound and sound cues. And this is something that you know I think just as in the movie entertainment industry, sometimes people talk about audio always comes after the the lighting people and the video people have done all of their work. And that's really something that hopefully people who are blind and low vision being more engaged and using these experiences, it's it should benefit everyone. You know, a big part of immersion is how we hear um, and process sound in the world, and so I think, for example, in these um, experiences where you travel to different locations around the world, it's it, it's immediately more interesting when. You're hearing like people speaking in the background, the language maybe that's being spoken there, and, and you're doing uh, more things that would make that engaging for everyone. So I guess it it it's going to depend by experience, but my um, my experience in accessibility has usually led that when we design something that will work, you know, for one population, generally other people benefit as well. So for example, if if we had people who are blind and low vision participating in the experience and could do things via sound or speech input. There's other people that might want to use speech input and, and hear the sound and not just only have a visual experience.
1: Even just raising awareness and empathy amongst the regular population about the plight of these people, you know, I can't help, but think that there's one uh, it's called notes on blindness. I don't know if you've seen it on in the Oculus store Yes, and it basically kind of puts you in the shoes of what it's like to be blind or low vision. You know, even, you know, there's some merit to putting, you know, people or having people walk in the mile of shoes of people with these disabilities, right?
0: Right. I think I, and I have um, actually done the notes on blindness experience. I thought it was, you know, great, very interesting. But one of my critiques was it did have, you know, interactions in it that required you to have sight so for someone like me that's always working on the inclusion aspect i just think it's unfortunate when something is built really from that purpose that should probably be one of the first ones to have the understanding of like hey someone that's blind or low vision might want to hear how this topic's being um, explained to other folks so I, i thought that was sort of a that's an opportunity maybe for a future release of that experience to you know continue innovating um, also, just touching on that topic, I mean, I, I think it's it's always an interesting topic of building empathy um, through using virtual reality. So that topic has come up in other interviews I've done about. Well, if we can let people experience what it's like to be deaf or blind in these experiences, it will help, you know, help them make changes um, in the, maybe the work they do. So for me, I think that's still an interesting topic. I don't discredit it outhand, but I know one of the the flip sides of that that comes from people with disabilities is that the concern is that people will use a simulation for five minutes and say, okay, I've got it. You know, I know what I I need to do now and not include people with disabilities in the design experience or in the process of creating these experiences. So there's the danger of um, potentially people thinking that they understand it from just doing a short simulation.
1: Or the the branding of a company, kind of like the environmentalism uh, front. The branding of a company saying we're all about accessibility when they all they're doing is pushing out empathetic experiences to the regular population and never designing anything for the inclusiveness or the population of people who need those applications. Right? Like absolutely. Yeah. You, you have like you know a grant of money. You know, you could choose path A, which is, oh, let's just make uh, something like notes on blindness and it can never be used by a blind person.
0: Right. And that's that's definitely my passion. You know, I'm like, I really want these experiences to be able to be used by everyone. And I think different experiences definitely bring different challenges. I, I believe like every experience could be made accessible, but the amount of work that that entails is also a goal of like, how can we reduce or basically make that a lower effort for the developers that build these experiences to just have these things be more accessible, either by default or with very little work.
1: Mm. Uh, you you recently have been offering presentations on this topic in social VR platforms like Altspace. Um, can you give us maybe a synopsis of some of the things that you you have in your talk that maybe we haven't talked about yet?
0: Sure. Um, the, the first idea is like I, I have a meetup called uh, Accessibility VR. So like on, on the meetup page, we try to meet one to two times a month. And one of the first experiences that we did um, that I hosted, it was like at the inaugural event, was just to find out let's invite people with disabilities into this meetup to participate and let's document any barriers or any lessons learned just from having people join us and and just be very forthcoming that, Hey, the purpose of this event is to be upfront that we know that VR has challenges, but we're a group that's interested in learning about them, you know, documenting them and then communicating them with the companies um, that build the experiences. So One thing that's really great about our current working environment is that Mozilla Hubs, um, which is the open source company um, that builds a social VR world, um, that world is also accessible from using just a 2D, like a laptop or a desktop computer. So it doesn't require having a VR headset. And I think that's one of the first barriers we're still trying to understand too about accessibility is that these devices do cost so much money. So we liked that they offered that. So I think that's an interesting topic we hadn't discussed yet, is that there's the chicken and egg issue that for someone, for example, that's blind or low vision or paralyzed, why would they buy a headset, like a more expensive headset now, if none of the experiences work? But the flip is, if no one has these headsets, how can you evaluate or work with people Um, to make sure that they work. So that's something interesting for us of, like, I think experiences that do allow people to access it, especially web VR-based experiences that can also work in headsets are a good area to um, explore accessibility. Um, Another, uh, I guess, another topic we haven't discussed that's coming up at our next event is uh, this controller called the 3D Rudder. And it's a controller where um, you can use your feet to, like move forward, backward, turn, rotate the views. You can do clicks with different um, heel and toe patterns. And so that's a really cool um, other input device that not many people have seen or thought about and we think is really exciting for people that might not have full use of both hands but have great mobility in their feet. Um, This controller would be a way to show that there's ways to make these experiences accessible to those people.
1: That's so interesting. Uh, I remember 3D Rudder uh, followed me on Twitter. And so the fact that you mentioned them again means that I need to maybe look into having them on the show just to talk to them about their perspective. So thanks for that.
0: Yeah, it's really cool technology.
1: Um, you know, the the educators that are listening to this might start to dabble in VR. And so if schools are looking to get started to embrace VR as a tool for offering a variety of learning experiences to children, especially, you know, those who have accessibility issues, what do you suggest, uh, how do you suggest they get started? For example, when you were talking uh, a few minutes ago, I couldn't help but think if I was to Google search, accessibility and VR has someone even curated a list of VR applications that uh, would be um, accessible if you will for people with certain disabilities
0: yeah that's a great question I think that's that that work is kind of ongoing and in, in development I don't actually know of a repository right now unfortunately I know that Microsoft for example in the gaming, <clears throat> And the gaming system is working on these types of badges or notifications to say this experience has been, you know, evaluated to work with these type of accessible tools. Like they have a specific specific adaptive controller. I think they're able to um, mark certain titles or titles can register or assert that they have those capabilities. So I think that's in progress, but I think that is a need um, and is something that, Um, I will kind of keep working to find out or contribute um, to that kind of repository. I think um, from my perspective, and I'm coming from someone that like works with the technology companies to implement these features and make sure that they happen um, for your question. I was thinking that one thing that um, teachers or educators can definitely do is make sure that if they have had an experience where, they had a student with a disability in their class and they weren't able to participate in using the experience that they actually log or send that specific feedback to the company or manufacturer of the experience because that's really a big issue is that a lot of the big companies do have people that care about accessibility but they often don't receive feedback or get the actual um, user stories um, to make it more impactful and to actually get their teams to do the work. Um, Another bigger picture one is that um, depending on people that work with the administration or maybe in the decision-making of purchasing software for like a a local government or, you know, a school system, there's the ability to put that in as a requirement into the contract um, that the piece of software will be accessible to people with disabilities. And then there is a way to actually communicate back and say, Hey, you know, to keep this contract, we want, we want this work to be done. Uh, That's definitely something that influences the decision because the, the final way that I usually have seen accessibility be influenced is through lawsuits, at least in America, you know, to saying like, Hey, my child wasn't able to participate in this activity or in this, um, school project because it wasn't accessible to them. And so that's really the, the way that we ideally don't want to go. And so I would really encourage though, that when barriers are encountered, that you do communicate them or make sure that they were logged um, some, somewhere to the manufacturer or to the developer of the experience.
1: And sometimes, you know, the best example I can give is a, a, a wheelchair accessible bathroom. Sometimes the changes that need to be made to a product or something don't necessarily then exclude the general population. Like a wheelchair bathroom can be used by anyone. It's just made more, as you said before, more inclusive and accessible to people who are in a wheelchair. You know, same idea with VR. Surely if we coach and teach developers of these applications that, you know, small, slight changes can, you know, broaden you know, what we call universal design so that everyone can use them, not just, you know, people who are uh, regular bodied or, uh, I don't know, for lack of a better word.
0: Yeah, I think one, one uh, big example I wanted to tack on there about the the physical space wheelchair accessibility, I find it very interesting for VR experiences that um, most of the most successful titles, like on the, um, the store have gone from maybe first assuming that people want to have this six degrees of freedom, you know, walking around in the space and, you know, really interacting by walking and and moving. But the reality is that there's a lot of people, even without disabilities, that still just want to do the full experience seated and not, you know, fully extending themselves, you know, so that's a a feature where I've seen like there's a game vacation simulator or when they did their second release, they decided to make sure that you could complete the entire game in a seated position. And that actually will work great for people that are in wheelchairs. But it also works great for a lot of people that didn't want to stand you know, for hours playing the experience.
1: Thomas, is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you feel would be worthy of uh, expressing to educators out there?
0: Um, I thought, I think the only topic I thought that's, that comes up in my thoughts a lot is about the expression in these virtual reality experiences of our avatars. And mm. so that's something to, to look at and potentially advocate for is that when we go into a lot of experiences where we do have to create a representation of ourselves, there are a lot of experiences where people try to make the avatar look like they do in the real world. And that's a, Limitation that you'll find in most um, design programs is that, for example, you can't choose to be displayed with a wheelchair or with a guide dog or with an uh, an amputee you can't you know be displayed with um, an amputee in the virtual world. And so I think it's an interesting topic to go on the flip that it's powerful for people to express themselves as something that they don't look like in the real world uh the, the inverse is also true that you know people should be able to express themselves how they look in the real world um in the virtual world so i just wanted to bring that topic up and say that's another one to consider or discuss when you look at um any platform where you would be able to create an avatar of yourself
1: and that's an excellent point i remember when uh the barbie doll
0: started to offer uh you know wheelchair barbie etc so. Yes. Yep.
1: How can people get a hold of you, Thomas, if they're interested in learning more about some of the work you do or maybe, you know, join up in your alt space group?
0: Sure. Well, the, the easiest way is on LinkedIn and Twitter. Okay. I am Tech TechThomas, so T-E-C-H-T-H-O-M-A-S. Um, I'm also Thomas Logan in Tokyo, Japan. Uh, there's a fair amount of Thomas Logans in the world, but not too many in Tokyo, Japan. So if you look for me, uh, look for the one that's in Tokyo, Japan. And you can also go to meetup.com and search for Accessibility VR. And if you'd like to join my meetup, we do a lot of socializing and networking after the presentation. So it'd be cool to meet anyone that was interested in this topic in virtual reality as well.
1: Well, it's been fantastic talking to you, Thomas. And I really, this is such an important topic. Like I said, right now, I I teach a design course to grade 11 kids and we're just getting into universal design and inclusive design. And so it's been uh, on the forefront of my mind. Um, So I'm glad uh, we reached out and I'm so happy that you decided to come on the show. If you can hang on afterward, we can, uh, once I sort of hit stop on the record we can do a quick debrief but once again we really uh, enjoyed having you and thanks so much for sharing your thoughts
0: thank you